electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Power Lunch. Alongside Courtney Reagan, I'm Tyler Matheson. Coming up, Regulation Nation, companies facing more and more regulatory scrutiny. Regulation is back, and it's not just one industry, nor is the pressure coming from just one source. Plus, getting a pulse of the economy, uh, we're going to talk to two power players who can shine a light on the consumer, the CEOs of Crocs and the Travel and Leisure Company will join us live. Court. Well, for Silo, let's give you a check on the markets right now. You can see things are a bit mixed with the Dow, the laggard here, down just 32 points. But we're going to watch that closely because closing in the green for the Dow would make this the 14th straight day of gains. That's something that hasn't happened since before 1900. Meta surprising Wall Street off its highs, but still up, reporting better than a respected, expected results and guidance, living up to the promise of more efficiency in that year of efficiency they love to talk about. We'll dive deeper into that name later in the show as it's higher by 5%. Other earnings movers, Chipotle sliding on a sales miss, eBay missing on results, and Comcast higher on strong results. IMAX also higher, touting the success of last weekend's Box office. Ty, I didn't see Barbie, but I want to. I want to see Barbie. I don't know how Chipotle could have a, a revenue miss with how many times my son and his buddies go there. But nevertheless, I guess you got one. All right. Let's begin with the growing scrutiny facing corporate America. As we've been covering, the FTC ramping up its antitrust measures of late. And now today, Capitol Hill taking aim at big technology, uh, though refraining from holding Mark Zuckerberg in contempt of Congress. Uh, the FDIC, along with the Fed, uh, putting big banks under the microscope yet, scope yet again. And let's begin, however, with the sort of bad week for big tech in D.C. with Emily Wilkins. Emily. Good afternoon. Well, lawmakers are escalating their war on big tech today with a proposed agency meant to rein in Meta, Amazon, Google and other major tech corporations. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Lindsey Graham, not two names that you often hear together, are introducing a new bill today to create a five member commission to oversee tech companies. The regulatory group would review potential mergers and limit how personal data is used in targeted ads. The ProTech Chamber of Progress said the bill is full of, quote, unpopular ideas, and consumers don't want to ban Google Maps or break up Amazon Prime, whether under a new commission or a current agency. There is one bright spot, though, for big tech. Uh, Meta is getting a break after House Judiciary uh, Chair Jim Jordan canceled a vote on holding Mark Zuckerberg in contempt of Congress. Republicans are currently investigating whether the White House pressured Meta to remove several Facebook posts. Jordan initially accused Meta of withholding information from the committee. But additional documents this week have seemingly satisfied the chairman's concerns, at least for now. It's notable that lawmakers even threatened holding Zuckerberg in contempt is really noteworthy. Such a move is usually reserved for politicians, not CEOs of major companies. It is, Emily, unusual for two senators as sort of diametrically opposed as Elizabeth Warren and Lindsey Graham to uh, come together on a bill. What's the origin here and what's the what's the what is the aim of that bill? 
Well, you have seen both Senator Warren and Senator Graham kind of on their own raise concerns about big tech. And these concerns are pretty wide ranging. They deal with privacy. They deal with antitrust. They deal with national security. They deal with just competitiveness. And so you kind of see Warren and Graham saying, look, we have all these ideas. We want to do all these things. Why not, instead of leaving it to Congress, which can take a lot of time, we create a commission that might be able to move more quickly and more flexibly? The hope is that this can actually go to the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, where Lindsey Graham currently sits. They're hoping that he can have some sway there. Uh, and the, really, the sense is that there are there is support for this. You've had similar proposals proposed in the past uh, from other senators. Uh, and there is a sense that this could have momentum as long as they actually find the time to do it. Obviously, a lot in D.C. to get done uh, before the end of the year. So, Emily, obviously, as you reported here, Zuckerberg was not ultimately held in contempt. Are these documents enough to sort of satiate what the lawmakers were looking for at this point or what's really next for Zuckerberg and the company, as I'm sure this is not the end of the the discussion about regulation? I certainly don't think that Jim Jordan would classify this as the end. I mean, really, this has been a thorn in Republican side for a while. They have said that social media networks and platforms have really been censoring conservative speech. Now, of course, those platforms have pushed back, saying that they do try to make sure that they are getting rid of misinformation. And so it's a bit of this push and pull that you're seeing here. And it might wind up being resolved with some sort of legislation. But of course, you have divided government right now, and this investigation is pretty partisan. So I I wouldn't expect uh, anything too big to be coming from Congress on this, just given everything they have going on and the fact that Republicans only control one chamber. Emily, thank you very much. Let's switch over to the growing oversight facing the financial sector. New capital rules being disclosed for the banking system. Leslie Picker is here with more. What's going on now for hey, the banks, Les? Hey, Court. So these are very highly anticipated. Uh, they're called the Basel III endgame, but don't expect this to be the end of the road because regulators are revising the capital framework, essentially the formula for assessing the riskiness of each firm to determine a new higher buffer to protect against financial stress. These changes would result and an aggregate 16% increase in common equity tier one capital requirements. The effects vary for each bank based on activities and risk profile, and regulators say most banks currently have enough capital to meet these new requirements. Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr spoke about these so-called Basel III endgame changes at an open meeting a short while ago. Barr says capital requirements, quote, must be aligned with actual risk so that banks bear the responsibility for their own risk-taking. The goal of our action today is simple, to increase the strength and resilience of the banking system by better aligning capital requirements with risk. As we learned earlier this year, banks with inadequate levels of capital are vulnerable, and that vulnerability can cause contagion, which threatens the stability of the banking system and hurts families and businesses. The banks, and in particular their lobbyists, are already pushing back on what's expected to be a fight through the four-month comment period. Fed Chair Jay Powell actually shared many of the industry's concerns. Raising capital requirements also increases the cost of and reduces access to credit, and the proposed very large increase in risk-weighted assets for market risk overall requires us to assess the risk that large U.S. banks could reduce their activities in this area, threatening a decline in liquidity in critical markets and the movement of some of these activities into the shadow banking system. The final version of the rules will begin a phase-in period in July 2025 with full implementation by 2028. But obviously the debate over these 
new rules starts today. Yeah, Leslie, I guess I'm just wondering about what risks are they trying to assess? Because many of these banks say, look, we, we have more than enough capital. But that's not really what was at the heart of the issue of so many of these bank failures previously earlier this year. So one of the key interesting aspects of this is they're actually increasing the regulations for banks that have a minimum of $100 billion in assets. Typically, historically, it's been for these larger firms, um, but they lowered that threshold in the wake of what happened in March and April, which showcased just the overall vulnerabilities, the contagion effect that smaller banks, smaller than what we're used to seeing as highly, highly regulated, uh, pose to the financial system. Uh, What they're changing is essentially the framework by which they assess risk. Right now, and the way that it currently works, is they use these internal models. Each bank has their own internal model to calculate their risk-weighted assets. What this would do is it would standardize it and then also have an expanded version that looks at different areas of risk, including operational risk, uh, including aspects of Uh, counterparty risk as it uh, relates to derivatives contracts, credit risk. Um, So it kind of broadens the, the, um, and market risk as well, broadens the scope by which they are subjected to, um, you know, assessing their own risk, assessing that framework. Um, And that, they say, will kind of increase uh, tier one capital requirements by about 16 percentage point in in, uh, aggregate. And and wouldn't that sort of almost definitionally mean less money into the system? Yes. Less lending, less... Less buybacks, less, less dividends buybacks. for yeah. investors. This is important because that excess capital, that that cushion, is oftentimes where bank C-suites sit and say, hey, maybe we should return some of this to investors in yeah. the form of buybacks, in the form of dividends. Additionally, it impacts the the ability and the, the willingness to, to lend. And so as a byproduct, it could, you know, curtail some of the, the credit availability that's out there. Um, so all of these things are going to be worked out throughout the comment period, but some version of this will go into effect. Yeah. Hmm. All right, Leslie, thanks very much. Leslie Picker, good to see you. All right, uh, more uh, on a growing regulatory scrutiny here in the United States. Uh, let's bring in James Pethokoukas, CNBC contributor and analyst with the American Enterprise Institute. Is regulation coming back, Jimmy? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it is coming back. I think the, the more short-term reason is uh, you have a split Congress, and if the Biden administration Democrats want to get anything done, it's probably going to be through the regulatory state, regulatory agencies, executive orders. And I think the broader reason is since the global financial crisis, the combination of the, of the global financial crisis over a decade ago, climate change and the rise of social media has made it a core sort of concept of democratic economics that this is a badly underregulated economy. So I think that's sort of the long-term uh, scenario. You know, you've got, I guess, regulatory agencies, antitrust uh, uh, officials and, and others looking at bigness, big banks. Oops, bad, bad, bad to be a big bank these days. Bad to be big tech these days. Is bigness the target here? It is. Uh, it's, it's sort of a throwback to sort of the, the way uh, Democrats and antitrust worked, you know, back in the, you know, the 30s, 40s and 50s, 60s. And then it became different. Then we started worrying a lot, lot more about consumers and bigness. Whether a company was big, it didn't really matter. How was it affecting consumers? But now it's really back to bigness and corporate power. Yet I wonder if the window isn't closing a little bit on that sort of view, especially of technology. After all, it's these big tech companies, which are also the leaders in AI, which is supposed to be the next big technology. It's we're competing with China and AI, both commercially and in national defense. And I think that that factor, sort of that national security aspect is going to play a role here. 
Jimmy, of course, all of this technology is constantly innovating. That's sort of the whole point, right, to move us forward. So if you're running one of these big companies, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, what do you do proactively to try to make sure that you can still have that runway for innovation, but that you're also not ticking off your senators at the same time? Yeah, I, I think the argument I would make, and it's one uh, some technology companies are making, is really twofold. One, they bring they bring up the China issue, which 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 is uh, I, which there's some legitimate aspects of that we're competing with China, and do we want to sort of you know handicap our biggest technology companies? But then I think there's just a a more fundamental issue is look. Imagine it was 1985 and you wanted to come up with a, a, a sweeping bill to, to regulate the Internet. It would have been ridiculous. Uh, it was barely there. It was, ju- it was, it was, it was uh, just beginning. It wasn't really, we didn't have the web yet. That might be where we're at with AI, at least. And I just don't think it's possible. I think that's the argument they're making. We're very early in this technology uh, and this would be a bad time to regulate it. And listen, if we were, I think if we were going to have a massive new regulation of social media, There have been a lot of opportunities where it seemed like a more relevant issue over the recent years than it does right now, and they have not been able to do it. And I'm just very skeptical that this agency or any other big sweeping bill is really going to happen. Is there a a world in a world where uh, is there a world (laughs) in which um, anti-woke GOP senators uh, and Congress people find league with anti-big Democrat senators and Congress people. Well, I think that that is the one th- if you were going to like. So on the other side of the argument, that would be it, that uh, Republicans aren't sort of the Republicans you used to know, that the sort of the populist MAGA aspect has a problem with big companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, you know, their critique is different than Democrats, which is why it makes it hard for them to come together mm-hmm. on legislation. Uh, so I think. If you're going to get a bill, you would look at those kinds of senators. And Lindsey Graham has been very active with social media. Uh, but does that go deep enough in the GOP that they're actually going to get together and start smashing mm-hmm. big business? You know, mm-hmm. taking, you know, we're going to have little Googles and they're going to, you know, cripple uh, Amazon and they're going to, you know, you know, take Instagram away from Facebook. Again, uh, it still seems unlikely. But if, if that was that is the scenario you would outline if you thought that was actually going to happen. Yeah. James, thanks very much. James Pethokoukas, we appreciate your time. But- Well, coming up, that increased regulation even extending to the state level. California investigating Tesla over its autopilot system. Details on that head. Plus, Crocs kicking rocks, the specialty shoe brand down 13%. Analysts jumping on any sign of weakness. We're going to speak to the CEO next. And as we head to break, a quick power check. On the positive side of the S&P, Align Technology up 13%. Earnings, revenue, and guidance beating expectations there. On the negative side, insurance name Willis Towers Watson's missing on results, blaming inflationary conditions and cost of investments. Power Lunch will be right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Shares of Crocs trading sharply lower, down almost 14%, despite beating on the top and bottom lines. Investors seeming to pounce on a mixed outlook, namely revenue, perhaps looking for a reason to sell the shares because they've been up 60% in the last 12 months. It's been quite a run. Here for a Power Lunch exclusive is Andrew Reese. He is the CEO of Crocs. Andrew, thank you very much for being with us here. I, I know there's also some disappointment in what's happening with the Hey Dude brand, some worry about some deceleration there, perhaps even some oversaturation. What's going on? Yeah, look, I, I think, as you said in your introduction, we had a record quarter in quarter two, over a billion dollars of world, uh, revenue, incredible levels of profitability, strong debt pay down, cash flow, et cetera. Uh, as we look to the future, I think the uh, the investors are very nervous about Hey Dude, right? So it's a new brand. It's new to us. We bought it a little over a year ago. Um, uh, uh, and uh, it was also new to them. It's a relatively new brand on the uh, on the whole consumer landscape. So I think there's a tremendous amount of nervousness around the brand. We did lower our expectations for the uh, rest of the year for the brand. That's really related to our wholesale business. Um, as we see uh, the bookings for the business, I think the wholesale channel is is nervous about what's going to happen with the consumer in the back half of the year. They're dealing with some overstocks from some other brands. They don't have strong history on Hey Dude. Uh, and unfortunately, because of our constrained warehouse capacity, we don't have a lot of capacity to do a lot of at-once business. So with short-term orders that they might put in and, and respond to them quickly. Um, over the long term, we will fix all of those things. We have a new warehouse opening later this year, which will put us in a great position for future. Uh, and we have a very strong level of confidence in the brand for the future over the long term. The consumers absolutely love it. The consumer takeaway in the second quarter, and it was up 27%. Um, so we, we're very confident about the future, but but I think we've got a, you know a few uh, wrinkles to work through in the next six months, and and the the investors are super uh, sensitive to that right now. So then, do you disagree with your wholesale partners about their nervousness when it comes to the inventory that they're looking to buy from you in Hey Dude or Crocs or even just in general? Yeah, we do. Um, I think we have more confidence in the consumer than perhaps they do. Um, our direct-to-consumer business in, in the first half of the year was incredibly strong, right? We see uh, strong double-digit comms, both on retail and e-com. I think our direct-to-consumer business uh, up 21% uh, across both brands for Q2. That's much, much stronger than some of our wholesale partners. So uh, part of that is the consumer is attracted to our brands and they're coming into our environments um, and they're getting uh, serviced and satisfied by what we have to offer. Um, and they're really loving what they what they see. Um, so we have more confidence. Um, and, um, you know, so the ways that we can respond to that, I think the uh, the wholesale partner is also trying to push a little bit of the inventory responsibility back to us. We can accept a little bit of that and help to uh, to share that burden with them. But we just have some, some constraints right now. So uh, we'll definitely work through it. We have a, a very uh, strong long term confidence. So, so how long do you think it's going to take to fix what you think you need to fix at Hey Dude? And I, I presume you're going to answer. Uh, you have no regrets over the acquisition. Yeah, we have absolutely no regrets over the acquisition. So, you know, we bought the company a little over a year ago. We paid two point three billion dollars. Uh, we borrowed some money to buy the company. Um, so, of that two point three billion dollars, uh, we paid down eight hundred and fifty million dollars in debt already. 
uh, and we have strong uh, line of sight to a significant incremental pay down. So we're essentially paying for the company extremely quickly. The company has grown uh, 80% over the last two years uh, is our two-year uh, stack growth rate. Um, it's highly profitable. It's accretive to earnings, and we think it has a good long-term potential. In terms of how long does it take to drive I think greater clarity about its future. Uh, we're very confident that HeyDude, for example, will grow next year and will grow substantially next year. So um, I think it'll 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 work out very well in the not too distant future. Andrew, before we we go, you obviously sell around the world, China up triple digits. Is that something that is uh, just a result of the reopening, or is that something that you think you can sustain going forward to some degree? It's two things, right? So there is some reopening in there for sure. We're up against some of those lockdowns from last year, but that triple digits is is way and above the industry average. So that's really a testament to the work that we've done over the last several years, investing in engaging the Chinese consumer, um, bringing our kind of full Crocs playbook and fixing what they, the structure of that market from a Crocs perspective, we're very much underpenetrated in that market. And so uh, we see that as a early signs of a long-term growth rate or a long-term growth potential in China. So in essence, your question, which is, can we sustain uh, high levels of growth in China and get much greater levels of penetration in the Chinese market, which is the second biggest football market in the world? Absolutely. Andrew Reese, CEO of Crocs, thank you very much for joining us here today, going through your earnings report. Appreciate it very much. Alrighty, further ahead on the program, we'll hear from another power player on the state of the consumer, the CEO of the travel and leisure company. I like both. Uh, joins us when Power Lunch returns. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Let's check out the action in the bond market with Rick Santelli. Hi, Rick. Hi, Tyler, and there is a lot of action. It all started this morning with a long line of data, most of it pretty strong. If you look at what was going on with durable goods, at 4.7, it was the best in three years, as you see on the chart. But what I find fascinating, let's go back farther. We're now at pre-COVID levels, actually on a high side of pre-COVID levels, something to pay attention to. And it didn't end there. Initial continuing claims were very well behaved. Here's a chart of continuing claims at 1.658 million. It's at the lowest level since the end of last year. Actually, I'm sorry, the end of January. And the effect that's had, well, look at 10-year yields. They're zoom, zoom, zooming. As a matter of fact, almost on cue, 4% while we're on the air. That's an important psychological level. Why is it there? Well, the Fed raised rates yesterday. Regulators talking about changing capital requirements at banks. That means maybe they have to sell treasuries. Now, none of that is for sure, but everybody is trigger happy in treasuries at a very ugly seven-year note auction. You see that right around one Eastern, the effects there. And that also pushed the distance between our yields and boon yields to the widest level since December. We'll call it eight months. And finally, the euros, well, the European Central Bank raised rates in their currency, it went up and then it went down. It's on pace for a three-week low close. That, of course, boosted the dollar, which is on pace for a two-week high close. 
Courtney Reagan, back to you. Thank you, Rick Santelli. Let's get over to Bertha Coombs. She has our CNBC News update. Hi, Bertha. Hi, Court. Former President Donald Trump said this afternoon that his attorneys had a productive meeting with Department of Justice prosecutors today. Though in a post on his social media platform, True Social, Trump claimed there was no notice given of an indictment. However, three sources told NBC News earlier today that his lawyers were told to expect an indictment from the grand jury looking into the January 6th insurrection and other alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The Justice Department has launched a civil rights investigation into the Memphis Police Department, looking into whether the department has a pattern of excessive force and unlawful stops, searches and arrests. The DOJ probe will also focus on whether the department discriminates against black residents. The announcement comes months after the death of Tyree Nichols while in police custody. But the new department probe is separate from a federal investigation into the Nichols case. It probably comes as no surprise. Scientists already think July will become the hottest month ever on record, and we've still got a week to go. That's according to the World Meteorological Association, which noted today that the previous record was set in 2019. I got to think, Courtney, there are a lot of air conditioners on sale right now, if you can find one. Oh, my gosh, exactly. I was just telling Tyler, I looked down at the computer, it's 94 outside here in New York. Ooh, yeah. That's just too hot for me. Well, coming up, some big earnings out today. We'll trade the names in today's three-stock lunch. Plus, is today the day the Dow's seemingly endless win streak does come to an end? We'll see. Power Lunch. We'll be right back. Time for today's three-stock lunch, taking a look at some big movers of the day based on quarterly earnings. So first up is Meta Platforms, shares surging on second quarter results, beating on the top and bottom lines, boosted by a rebound in ad revenue and issuing optimistic guidance for the third quarter. Now, the stock is up over 100% year-to-date, and analysts think there is still more room to run. So here with our trades is Victoria Green. She's Chief Investment Officer at G-Squared Private Wealth. Victoria, what's your take on Meta? What a high flyer. Yeah, no, it's going to keep flying high. I think it's still a buy at these prices. You're still about 18, 19% off it. It's all-time highs. And we think all of the products they've launched with Reels and then what they can do with the metaverse. I know the metaverse is kind of a joke right now, but eventually with tie-ins with AI and VR, I think that will get going. Look at it. They have three out of 8 billion people logging in every single day and their ad revenue has continued to increase. So the this dearth of ad revenue spend, I think, is over. You saw that with Google and Meta, and it's a great platform for advertisers to be on. So it's still a buy because they're, they're saying they're going to have 20% growth next quarter. Well, let's move on uh, to McDonald's shares higher after the fast food uh, giant topped estimates. The uh, Grimace birthday meal helped drive sales, Victoria. I didn't didn't know anything about that, but uh, but maybe you do. It's a, I mean, it's hard to keep a straight face talking about the Grimace effect on our earnings, but it was. They're good at product rollouts. They know their market very well. They've been very strategic with price increases, and they do feel even if some of their foot traffic were to slow, they're going to pick up more traffic from people kind of downsizing from uh, sit-in restaurants to fast casual, and they're still seen as a value deal. Also, you're seeing this growth internationally. Only about 47% of the revenues are U.S.-based. The rest come from international emerging markets. You saw great strength in Europe, including Germany and the U.K., and I think they're going to continue to be strategic. And it's a well-run, well-executed company. You have such consistency across stores. Their marketing's on point, And they have one of the strongest brand names out there right now. So for me, McDonald's is just a steady Eddie blue chip buy. 
And finally, Southwest Airlines shares. These are down almost 10% today. Despite posting record revenue for the second quarter, the company notes a drop in unit revenue and rising labor costs. Wow, there's a lot of talk about labor these days. Victoria, what do you make of Southwest from here? Yeah, and they are fighting labor. They are one of the only that do not have a pilot's or flight attendant's uh, contract long term. Uh, and they're just struggling because they don't have the international market pickup that you saw like Delta and United uh, report. And also they were a little bit just in line. Everybody else blew it out of the water in Q2 and they came in just in line. So they really need to work on optimizing their fleet, optimizing their pilot scheduling, getting that contract done and, and getting that headwind out of the way. They are pretty good with fuel hedges, but investors are so wary of airlines as a long-term investment because it's bitten them so many times. So I think investors are concerned that you're just not going to see this, this peak profit and this peak travel uh, just continue forward. And Southwest is so exposed to leisure travel and they're even leaning in harder on leisure travel. They're cutting out some of the, the favorite um, kind of corporate travel routes, shorter routes, early morning flights. So if leisure travel sells, they don't have international and they're tilting away from corporate. So I just see them as the weakest airline right now. Hmm. It's interesting. Uh, the Southwest flights I've been on this summer have been absolutely packed. It stresses me out how they do the boarding, where you have to like line up by the numbers. Different lines, yeah. I don't, not my favorite, but it's a fun airline. No. Victoria, thank you very much. All right, let's talk thank a little bit more about markets, earnings. Uh, all three indexes uh, negative right now. Look at the Dow Industrials hmm. off a half a percent. Rachel Aiken, senior investment officer at Cape Cod Five Wealth Management, which has nearly $2 billion in assets under management. Rachel, welcome. Good to have you with us. Great to be back. Good. Thank you for has having the, me. Has the market gotten ahead of itself? Well, you know, we've seen just kind of an uninterrupted ride for the better part of this year. We've had only one slight pullback uh, back in March and ever since then, you know, we've just had these incremental days of 1% or less higher and higher. Um, if you look at valuations, you know, at the at the index level, it does look a little bit stretched. Um, we like to kind of dissect the market a little bit further and say there are great opportunities that lead us to believe it's not overstretched under the surface. Average stock in the S&P, uh, much below the 20 times forward earnings that we're looking at today. But, you know, earnings are going to be a pivotal part of whether this market can continue to climb higher. But it's really had the wind at its back as we've looked at a more resilient economy, recession somewhat pushed down the road. Um, really, the worst case scenarios in so many macro elements sidestepped. And uh, people on the sidelines who are looking at 5% T-bills now looking at 20% equity returns wanting to get back in. Would you expect or be surprised to see a, a pullback? You know, I think uh, we have seasonality looking at a slower market where we may be able to point to a pullback. I think it would be healthy for the market to take a pause and perhaps take a, a, a few paces back, regroup before stepping forward, perhaps in the fall. Would not surprise. And I don't believe if we see even a garden variety pullback, 8%, 10%, we'd stay there long. Um, I think there mm. is sufficient momentum behind it for people to step in and say, this is my opportunity. From missing out. I don't think, of course, this is uh, this is categorized as one of those pullbacks here, but we are at session lows here as we're trying to see if the Dow can make it for that record 14th straight up day right now. Doesn't look like we're there. But I, I'm wondering, Rachel, if there if you have any belief that some of the old guard can come back, that some of the market breadth can actually expand a little bit, that it's not all going to be concentrated in those magnificent magnificent seven stocks. I'm looking here even just week to date, and energy's been pretty strong. Material's been pretty strong. We haven't been able to say that in some time. 
No, you're absolutely right. And I think that was really giving investors a reason for concern. Uh, we started to see the tides turn a little bit away from that magnificent seven, as we call it, to other areas of the market mid-June. Uh, if you look at June versus uh, tech versus other areas of the market, industrials and materials actually did better. You saw small caps and mid caps outperform large caps. And we're seeing that breadth continue to widen. And I think just being on a Dow watch, climbing higher and higher as opposed to the NASDAQ speaks to some broadening that we're seeing. And again, that's a very healthy and welcome uh, thing in the market. If you were going to put money to work today for the next year to five years, what kind of stocks would you would you look at or name some names? So I think diversification is always your best friend in the long term. So uh, again, looking at a portfolio, it would be allocated across multi caps within the S&P 500, um, you know, somewhat neutral sector wise, but across all sectors. But again, looking for opportunity today based on the rise in so many areas um, as of late, we might look at some of the unloved areas that have mm. kind of been put, pushed out to pasture, um, the utilities area, real estate investment trusts, those areas that have been painted with a broad brush, set aside because of their normal dividend attractiveness over the last decade, no longer as attractive. But I think in the case of utilities and next era energy that we like, you get a great, strong, growing dividend, but you also have great growth opportunities. You can marry a company with an 8% EPS growth rate for the next couple of years um, and a dividend that they just increased yesterday by 12%. So we think that's an excellent opportunity. And you have clean energy with the wind at its back and the uh, profitability tailwind there that the Inflation uh, Reduction Act is providing there. And then in REITs, again, another area that's been painted with a broad brush, really um, put to, to the side. It's another sector that under the surface, there are so many areas to invest in. And liking American right. Tower there, again, it's a great growth story internationally for them and their foray, foray excuse me, into data centers, All growth right. driver. Rachel, thank you so much. Rachel Aiken, we appreciate your time today. Thank you. Nice to see you. You bet. Well, coming up, under investigation, California's Attorney General launching an inquiry into Tesla over autopilot safety issues and false advertising complaints. We'll have the key details when Power Lunch returns. Some big news in the lithium space could have massive implications for that sector as well as EVs. Pippa Stevens has the details. This is hot. All the all the rage EVs these days. Yes, very much all the rage, Courtney. And what we saw today was Piedmont Lithium announced that it secured a key permit for its lithium conversion plant in Tennessee as the U.S. races to develop domestic supply chains for batteries. A plant like this requires dozens of permits, but the so-called air permit, which Piedmont just secured, is the crucial one. The company can now start building the plant with production slated for 2026 using lithium imported from Ghana. But since it's processed in the U.S., it will still qualify for the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act. At peak capacity, the plant could produce enough lithium for 600,000 electric vehicles. Now, China currently controls this market, refining more than 60 percent of global lithium supply. While the U.S. has a lot of lithium, only about 2 percent is processed domestically, according to Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. So Piedmont is one of the companies looking to change that, with CEO Keith Phillips telling me the plan is in an ideal location, a region that some are now calling the battery belt. Hmm. 
That's fascinating stuff. Wow. So 2025 would be the soonest this plant would come 2026. on. 2026. 2026 would be yes. the soonest this plant would come yes. on. Yes. Pippa, thank you very much. All right, speaking of the EV space, Tesla finding itself in the hot seat yet again. Uh, the California AG investigating the company's autopilot safety and marketing. CNBC.com's Laura Kolodny joins us now to discuss. Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, tell us what's going on here. Let's start with this issue of phantom braking in, in some Tesla vehicles. And I should point out, as I have before, that I have a Tesla, and I think I have experienced this phenomenon. Uh, I, I hope it didn't affect you too badly. So phantom braking is when the car suddenly decelerates. It's not usually coming to a complete stop. It suddenly slows down for no apparent reason uh, on the basis of its autopilot or driver assistance systems kind of overreacting to something they think might be an obstacle. Think. I mean, you know, sense might be an obstacle. Inaccurately senses might be an obstacle. Like sometimes it's caused by an overpass with a shadow or something like this. And this has been a widespread complaint. Earlier, the Federal Vehicle Safety Agency investigated the phantom braking complaints. I don't think they've come to a final conclusion on that. And now it looks like uh, we learned from sources that had, you know, correspondence and voicemails that they shared with us that California's Attorney General's uh, Consumer Protection Division is looking into those complaints, as well as complaints about false advertising. Uh, one owner of a Tesla told us uh, that he had filed a complaint to the FTC and then the California AG followed up to ask about it. And one of his main complaints beyond the phantom braking issue, which is a safety thing, was that he had paid thousands of dollars for the premium driver assistance system in his Tesla, which is uh, marketed as full self-driving. And it's not self-driving. It's not, not close. Uh, so those are the concerns we know the AG is investigating. The scope of their investigation may go beyond that. Yeah. I, the, the car I own does not have the full self-driving, but it has what I would call sort of an enhanced cruise control function that keeps you in a lane. Uh, and the, the, the out-of-nowhere braking occurs when you sense that some sensor on the car has picked up something, and it reacts rather, rather dramatically. A second issue, apparently, are uh, claims about uh, range on the Model 3 and the Model Y, maybe on other cars as well, that the, that the cars actually don't get the 330 miles or whatever it is that Tesla claims they do. That's right. Reuters had a blockbuster investigation out this morning talking about how Tesla's, even their in-vehicle displays, are overly optimistic when they tell drivers, uh, you know, how much range they have left on the battery. Uh, Tesla has also been marketing this, you know, as the, the world-class uh, range. You could get the most miles per charge out of all these other cars on the market. And independent researchers like Recurrent and others, as well as internal records, show that they, they overstated that range. Yeah, very interesting. Has this, uh, have either of these issues raised to the level of a formal inquiry? And what, if anything, does Tesla say about either of these issues? You know, Tesla hasn't responded to uh, press requests in many moons. Uh, Elon Musk dismissed the traditional PR team. Of course, Joe Rogan doesn't book itself. I've said that before. But, uh, you know, clearly they have some uh, business development, government relations and other people, but they simply don't answer our questions. All right. Laura, thank you very much. <laughs> thank Laura you. Laura Kolodny. does make it hard to do reporting when yeah. that's the case. Yeah. Well, still ahead, the travel trade, timeshare giant travel and leisure missing second quarter revenue estimates as membership sales 
fell 5% from a year ago. Is post-pandemic travel boost, is it starting to fade? Well, we'll ask the CEO when Power Lunch returns. Welcome back to Power Lunch. The travel and tourism sector is often a gauge on the broader economy, and we're getting a read on some recent earnings reports of what we're seeing. We've heard from Hilton yesterday. They're saying travel demand is strong, while Southwest is indicating demand could be softening. Timeshare company Travel and Leisure reported a miss on revenues, but shares are slightly higher today. For more, let's bring in CEO Michael Brown. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. So I guess that's a great place to start. Where are we when we're looking more broadly at the state of the travel market? We all needed to break out of our homes post-COVID, but has that boom peaked? Well, travel continues to be strong in 2023, and it may have softened slightly or normalized from what we saw in the pent-up demand that we saw in Q2 and Q3 of 2022, but that was abnormal. Um, Leisure demand this year has remained very consistently in demand, and I don't see it further softening Uh, assuming the macroeconomic conditions don't change. What I think you're seeing this year is a rotation of how people are traveling. Listen to some of your earlier segments, and what is happening is people are getting to places they didn't get to go to during COVID or last year. International travel, I heard the cruise commentary, and that's creating a little more competition in the U.S., but I can say for our business, our demand and arrivals for the second half of this year are no different than they were than in 2019. So leisure demands here, it's just rotating a little bit uh, on the type of travel. And where is the demand uh, highest right now in your business? And and how, frankly, is, is these heat waves that we've been seeing in many places around the world impacting that? Right. Well, let's start domestically. Uh, the, the greatest demand that we're seeing is in the south, southeast of the United States. And maybe that heat are driving people to our beach resorts, because when we look at our searches and we re, when we look at our bookings, they're at southeast beach locations. As you go internationally, two of the hottest destinations are clearly European summer travel. And as well, the Mexico market has really come back in force. Um, and it's been that way for over a year. Um, Again, I think as we look into next year, um, some of the demand of locations where people haven't been to in three or four years will come back and the distribution of travel will be a bit more normalized um, next year between domestic and international. I'm curious about Mexico because there are uh, some safety concerns there. Uh, Are you hearing those at all? Well, I I think we tend to hear the headlines of individual incidents that occur in some of the resort destinations. But, you know, places like Los Cabos and Cancun uh, and Puerto Vallarta have really stepped up. Not only um, the quality of the resorts and the destinations, but the security around them and the infrastructure that gets you from airport to resorts. So, I, you know, sometimes uh, old news plays out longer than it probably should. But mm-hmm. but the Mexican destinations have really stepped up uh, the quality of the travel experience and and the arrivals would say no. And, and most of those arrivals, if they're not domestic Mexicans, they're coming from the United States. Michael, obviously there's some debate about where we are in the economic cycle. Some believe that a recession still may be coming. Others believe perhaps we're past it. How does a timeshare company like Travel and Leisure typically hold up when economic times do face a softening? 
Well, I think it's one of the beautiful aspects of of our model in two different respects. Uh, we sit at the nexus between what's what's great about hotel rooms, brands you can trust, loyalty programs, uh, meeting your expectations, combined with the benefits of vacation rentals, which is more space. Um, but we provide that more space with amenities in a brand you can trust. In a, in a recessionary time, 80% of our owners have fully paid for their ownership. So they don't need to make an economic decision whether they're going to travel to Central Florida, California, or Hawaii in October in the event of a downturn. They've already paid for it. So it's simply, do they want to use their vacation? What we tend to see is they might they might transition from a long-haul destination to a drive-to to save that incremental money. But our owners are still going to go on vacation. And we've already seen that because uh, the arrivals that we have 120 days out are no different than they were in 2019, despite all the news we've heard in the first six months of this year. All right, Michael, thank you very much. We appreciate your perspective today. Continued good luck to you. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you. More on the market's wild swings today, looking like that uh, 14th day of Dow gains. Huh? Had to do a little work to get there. Uh, we'll talk about that with Bob Pisani and more when Powerlands continues. All righty, folks, we got some wild market moves today. The Dow around session lows. The lows were about 220 negative, now about 190. Bob Pisani here to discuss it. Uh, Bob, an hour or so ago, you talked about how low volatility was. Now we're starting to see a little uh, of what we would describe as, I guess, volatility. Yeah, I want to put up the 10-year yield because I think what caused this was a poor seven-year auction. Rick gave it a D, and for whatever reason, the, the minute we hit that, uh, yields on the 10-year went over 4%. This was sort of a line in the sand for a lot of market observers. Two-year over 5%. It didn't quite happen, but the, that yield there moving up over 4%. Market immediately started moving down. Look at the S&P 500. We've lost more than 40 points uh, in a little over an hour, and that's exactly right around the time of that 1 p.m. Uh, interest rate sensitive sectors, for example, technology, high prices, uh, that was the one that moved down really, really fast. You can see the tech sector, which has been at a new high, uh, also moving into negative territory. So tomorrow we'll get these personal consumption expenditures, uh, guys. Maybe that will be important. Uh, we're expecting headline uh, 3%. That would be a real, uh, real interesting number. We got in the 2% range. Uh, I think that'll help tamp down concerns about higher interest rates. Guys, back to you. Yeah, very interesting. That, uh, watching the bonds, often a, a tell of what's going to happen in stocks. Bob, thank you very much. Okay. We appreciate, appreciate your time. I know you'll be watching it for uh, our viewers over the next hour or so as we wait to see whether that win streak has been 13 continues. Yeah, it doesn't does it look now. like it. Real estate is the second biggest lagger for a group here. Of course, also they're very sensitive to interest rates. Thank you for watching Powerland. Closing bell starts right now. Court, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.